Hello and welcome to Untapped Magic. I'm Kat Northill. This podcast is all about having the conversations you'd have around the dinner table and asking how it is that successful individuals got to where they are today. This podcast aims to help you untap your magic within. I'm super lucky to have an incredible first guest on Untapped Magic. She's a best-selling author, a cancer survivor and a resilience expert. I'm so excited to welcome Jess Van Ziel. Hi, thank you for having me. You are more than welcome. I really want to start off by asking you, what has had the greatest impact on where you are today? Oh, that's such a big question. Um, I think there are so many moments in life that have had such an impact and taking those lessons out of each of them has been so important. Um, But I would have to say, like, being diagnosed with cancer in your 20s and having the reality and life flipped on its head and kind of have that, your mortality kind of thrust in your face. Um, I think that's been the biggest impact because it made me realize that life isn't something to take for granted. Every single day is an absolute blessing. And it's made me really conscious of the actions that I take every day. It's made me very conscious of appreciating in every, like every moment um, and really making sure that the impact I have on people's lives, you know, I have that impact immediately. And it's kind of given me this air of like a courageousness that I don't think I had beforehand um, because I know that, you know, things can happen. Life can be taken away at a blink of an eye, (laughs) pun intended there. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, I, I don't want to at any moment in my life, have a regret or wish that I'd taken an opportunity that had been handed to me and I'd been too afraid to take. So I think that that moment and knowing that um, life is so, so short, which sounds so, I don't know. I always feel like that sounds just like something that's said in the movies or something like that, but life is really short and it's the most important thing is to take action and take the opportunities that are handed to you whenever they are handed to you. You're talking about that is is really important because from all that I've read is the 20s is such a formative year. I'm really early on in my 20s, but I've learned so much in my short time in my 20s. And I think I can't imagine what it would have been like. I'm similar age now than when you were first diagnosed, Mm -hmm. how much that would have shaped your 20s and, and where you are now. Do you think when you look back on your 20s and like the start of your 20s, you know, how would you, what would you say to that Jess that was 21? The one that had been diagnosed or before my diagnosis? Right before, I reckon. I think I would have just told her just to keep being her, to have fun, keep exploring life and look for the opportunities and always say yes to everything that comes up, even if it scares you a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny because I love that, that you said, you know, say yes to everything because, you know, in, in your book, I Won, that was something that reoccurred throughout is that, you know, you wish in right at the end, you said, these are the things that I've learned and that saying yes is so important. You know, what are some of the things that you wouldn't have said yes to hadn't you've gone through what you've been through now? I don't even know if it's things I wouldn't have said yes to. That's possibly even more than that. I don't know if the, I would have looked for the opportunities that I've had since then. Um, like it, it, there's a moment and I actually don't remember if I've met, if I wrote about it in the book, 
when I was at high school, one of the things when I was looking at my career options and things like that, I actually said was to my careers counselor, I was like, I really enjoy public speaking. Like, is there an opportunity here? Is there, you know, what can I do? And she kind of said, um, unless you're interested in going into politics, uh, you know, you can't really, like, there's nothing really in that area. Um, it's not like you face much adversity or anything like that. And you can't, because I sort of said, I was like, oh, well, we've had motivational speakers. What about them? And she was like, yeah, but they've had a lot of things happen to them or they've had, they've got a strong message there. Kind of not your area. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up studying nutrition and going down that path, which I, I'm really grateful I did go and study. There was so many benefits um, to it. I've never used my degree <laughs> ever um, outside of like my own personal use. But yeah, turning that around and coming back to doing the speaking and, um, you know, finding that that's actually been the path that I've ended up on. I, I always laugh at that moment. And um, yeah, it, it's kind of that funny thing where it's like, well, it was something I didn't really think was on the cards for me. And now it has become that way. I think that's so funny because I reckon there's so many times in young people's lives where they'll talk to a teacher about, you know, oh, I love the idea of doing this, especially like when like course selection comes up and subject selection, which I know a lot of young people will be facing very, very soon, yeah. especially given, um, you know, it's almost exam time. And I think it's so strange and both beautiful at the same time that that one thing that you loved has come back into your life and it's now what you do and, and excel at. Yeah, it's it's so funny that that is. Like, I always look back at that moment. I'm like, wow, that's got to be a little bit of intuition right there. <laughs> you put it out into the universe early and it just took a little while to come true. Yeah, I had to uh, go through a bit of adversity beforehand, apparently. <laughs> which, which it makes me laugh because, you know, in reading your book, you had faced adversity up until that point, you know from the fact that you're a miracle to be even born to then, you know, you having a disease so young that, you know, there's so many things that as I read your book, I, you were, had it faced adversity and, and trials and tribulations up until that point. It just wasn't the, what would be deemed the hardest ones. Yeah. <laughs> just yet. <laughs> but I think those were, you know, that the reason I ended up putting those in the book um, was always because there was, I've always had this question asked to me or like it's either been phrased as a question or as a statement. And it's always sort of been like, you know, how did you become so resilient or, you know, you must've just been born that way. And it always used to really irk me. Cause I was like, no, like just because I have this, you know, this positive energy that a lot of people see must either be that I've had an easy life or something like that, or that I'm like some sort of miracle child, which I'm not, I work on my mental health and my, self-care so much it is such a high priority to me um and like to have that assumption that I've just had an easy life because that's my attitude was really frustrating and it was one of the things I went no I want to show you that you know just because I've had um just because I have a positive attitude and just because I have trained my mind so much to look for gratitude and to look for the things and the beautiful moments in life to appreciate does not mean that I have not had challenges beforehand. And it also doesn't mean that those challenges have to be, you know, your, the things that trip you up. Um, they can be the building blocks and the things that help you grow to be a stronger person. Um, 
And that doesn't need to be, you know, in case something else happens. It also just means that you can grow as a person and take on the lessons. Um, one of the things that I always come back to is that I redefined failure when I was probably about 25, 24, 25, that kind of age. Cause what, that was one of the things that used to hold me back was I was so, so terrified of failing. I was so afraid of, um, not doing everything to the hundred percent and more. And, you know, for me then coming back and looking at what that was and how I could redefine my failure. And for me, I had to take the whole thing, completely reframe it and say that I could only ever fail if I did not learn a lesson from a situation or a circumstance or whatever I faced, or I have not given 100% of my effort to something, then, then I can fail. If I have not done those two things, then I can fail. But as long as I know that I've you know, tried and I've learned something, I can't fail and that changed the way I, I address everything. It means that I can go out, I can take chances, I can put myself out there, I can you know, do anything because at the end of the day, as long as I know that I've put all of that energy into it, can't fail. <laughs> yeah, there's always a lesson in everything that you do, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. Um, and I think that really leads into the fact that you look for gratitude in everything that you do. And um, I want you to look, like think back and, and, and speak about when that really was implemented in your life, when you started going, okay, I'm going to look for gratitude in everything I do. <laughs> because I love your model on, on gratitude. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because um, whenever I come back to this moment, there is such a strong, strong memory. Um, it, gratitude for me comes straight back to my grandma um, she is this beautiful, just, oh, she's just like a teddy bear of a woman. I love her so, so much. I've always had such a good relationship with her. Um, in my teens, that was probably when I was going through my sort of like real testy phase. And I was like, I've always been a bit of a rebel. I've always been one of those people who doesn't like being told how to live life. Like I always you know, someone would tell me what the rules were. I always wanted to test the rules to make sure that they were actually the rules. <laughs> I didn't just believe it when it was told, when that was sort of said to me, um, which I think drove my parents mad. And my grandma throughout most of my life always used to speak about how having an attitude of gratitude would change my life. And I used to roll my eyes at her and go, oh, you wouldn't know anything about being a teenager in the 21st century. Like this is so outdated. This is so ridiculous. Like life is completely different. And she was so persistent and so like, it did, she didn't take it on. She didn't really get irritated at me for sitting there going and kind of just throwing it back at her and going, yeah, whatever, granny, whatever. She just kept bringing it up and kept bringing it up. And one day, on, I think it was like 2014. Actually, um, that's my first gratitude journal. She handed it to me and she handed it to all of her grandchildren and said, I've bought this book. I just want to ask you one favor. If you could do this for me, um, can you write one thing every day that has made you smile or that you are grateful for or that you appreciate? I would be so grateful. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do this for my granny because I would do anything for my granny, but I did not think that this was going to change my life. 
And the first entry in the gratitude journal is, was about the postman that used to work on our street. And he always, like, I, I just must have crossed paths paths with him that day and no matter what the weather was like no matter whether it was summer or winter or anything like that this guy always had a smile on his face and he was always just so he just had this presence and this sort of real love for his job and for his like for the like area that he worked in and things like that and I just wrote that down I was like just crossing paths with him and seeing him and saying hi and having a little conversation with him that's what made me smile today and from there kind of turned into this thing where I was like, oh, that kind of feels nice. Like it kind of feels nice just to take a moment and think about what's made me smile. And with time, I started putting, you know, three, four, five, six things down and ended up getting to the point where I was making lists like, like I could have just kept going and I had to come back and go, okay, what are the three top things I'm grateful for? Because you know, the, the list just could have kept going and I didn't have the time to sit down and write lists of like hundreds of things that happened in a single day. I think it really changed my perspective then, but then when I went into hospital and when I was really going through a lot of challenges, there was, because I trained my mind so, so well and so consistently, like I practice gratitude every single day non that is non-conditional it is still non-conditional for me and or unconditional okay I realized when I was in hospital like I was taking note of all the things that I was grateful for like I was being diagnosed and treated for stage four cancer like I was on literally on my deathbed potentially and I'm sitting there thinking about how wonderful some of the doctors and the nurses were and how amazing the treatment was and how beautiful the fact that I got to see a sunset from my room or a sunrise or whatever it was. And I was just taking these conscious notes and thinking about how appreciative I was for those moments. And that was a real indicator of how important that gratitude actually was for me. You know, it made me feel like so good inside. It made me feel that life wasn't all dull and all down and all doom and gloom you know I, as I said I'm sitting on my deathbed and yet I'm still looking at life and realizing how beautiful it is and how many amazing things can happen and they're those little moments that make you smile it doesn't need to be these huge actions of you know that bring gratitude up it, it is actually the smaller moments that are the most important to take account for because they're the ones that can you know just go past in the blink of an eye and then they're gone Whereas, you know, the big things we can sit there and those are the things I think a lot of people feel that they can feel gratitude for and that they should feel gratitude for. And, you know, when you think about the smaller things, the things that have made you smile today, the things that have made you laugh, the acts of kindness, you know, I always think about when you go to like the supermarket and the cash register, like the person on the cash register just smiles at you. And, you know, just that little warmth that it brings, like for me, that's, you know, a little buzz. It's like, oh, I really appreciate that. And just taking a little mental note. And yeah, it's really changed the way I perceive the world, the way I go about the world. And it also changes the way I show up in the world because I want to make other people feel that same level of like, just that little recognition and things like that and just make them feel like they're appreciated. And also that um, that they want to smile and that they want to laugh and bring that to them. So beautiful to hear that 
you know, it is the small little moments that, that are so impactful, but also it's those small moments that you might have like telling somebody they smell nice or they look lovely today or something like that can, that can have the biggest impact on someone's day, month, year, and so on and so forth. And I think that's really important that it's something you spoke about in your book and it really, it really hit me quite hard. It made me really think about, you said that, you know, you want to make sure that the people in front of you get to see you do incredible things while you're there and get to, like, you get to love them and, and be with them while you're there. And I think that's so important because, you know, as you said, you're on your deathbed, but yet you still looked at it like, you know, I'm going to love these people. I'm going to inspire these people. I'm going to be there for these people while they're in front of me. And I think it was so important, especially like, I, I want to say like, I almost became ferociously protective of like my nurses and my doctors and stuff like that, because a lot of the time, and this is not a discredit to my friends or my family or stuff like that, but they, I could even recognize like sometimes some of them wouldn't respect the doctors and the nurses the way I wanted them to be respected. You know, those doctors and those nurses were making me feel so safe and secure and looked after and cared for like they they were amazing and I there were a couple of people in my life um some of them that aren't in my life anymore that used to not give them the same sort of appreciation respect that they deserve so I became like I, I used to say like you know you need to treat them with respect and I used to like really stick up for them because that level of appreciation for the way they cared for me for the work that doctors and nurses do like it is a hard job I I genuinely don't think I could do it um I am not patient enough for, the, for that and I'm not it requires a lot just for someone to do and I always wanted them to know how much I appreciated it and I wanted them to know that they were doing the best job and that they were making me feel so okay with what was going on and they were doing you know that no matter how hard you know I, I used to hear people in the other room like yell at the doctors or the nurses or get frustrated and it's like my frustration's got nothing to do with them my frustration's got to do with my circumstance and my situation and my frustration is mine they don't need to see that you know doctors and nurses especially in current times they're doing incredible things and I think often they don't get the pat on the back and the love that they deserve and I love throughout your book that you call all the doctors and nurses different things and characteristics about them, <laughs> for like for both privacy for them, but also because it gives you a real understanding of, you know, when you're reading a book or something, you don't quite understand who this person is. Yeah. And, you know, I got this real, this real understanding of who they were and I felt like you were sitting there telling me about them. Yeah. Um, and it made me appreciate that, you know, there is some incredible humans in this world who are in this space of, of trying to do the best for everybody that they can. And I think you're also one of those people now too. You've given back in that sense that you're now the advocate for these people going through some really hard stuff. Yeah, being like being an advocate is, it's one of the most incredible things that I get to do. It is also one of the, one of the hardest roles I hold, I think. Being the voice for a whole population and I, I do it on different levels. Um, I am an ocular melanoma advocate. I am a melanoma advocate. I am the co-chair of a youth cancer action board. Like I have so many different advocacy roles and they are some of the most important things I hold because it is taking what I've gone through, the, the challenges that I've faced 
the lessons that I've learned and actually putting them into action and making real incredible change, whether it's encouraging young people to go and get skin checks, you know, bringing light to the fact that melanoma is the number one cancer in people aged 15 to 35 um, in Australia. And we need to be on top of getting our skin checked. We need to be looking after our skin, getting, you know, wearing sunscreen and things like that, because I never want someone to be diagnosed with stage four melanoma and to have to go through brain surgery, have to relearn how to walk, have to, you know, not know whether or not they're going to get through it. Like for me, that, that is the reason why I advocate is because I, I want to make sure that no one goes through the circumstances that I did and the situations that I did because they, they were really challenging and I would never take back what I've gone through. They've met my situation and my circumstance and my diagnosis and everything has made me the woman that I am. But it also, I would not wish what I went through on anyone else. That's, it's so beautiful to hear that, you know, you wouldn't take back what happened because I know a lot of people would have resentment yeah. for what happened to them and you've come out of it with a positive spin and, and an advocacy side of it. And I would love for you to touch base on, especially that moment you've, when you found out that the immunotherapy that you were on was covered by the PBS, that other people wouldn't have to fork out hundreds of thousands of dollars to get treatment to survive. Golly, that was like... I still cry. That was probably one of the most magical moments in my entire life. We, so I still, like, I remember the feeling of deep dread when we found out how much that treatment was going to cost. I actually, I wrote about it in the book and I, and I was genuinely that way. Like I said no to the treatment. I was like, I'm not putting my parents in a position where they are going to be potentially a hundred, you know, $120,000 in debt. And, you know, they may not have a daughter to show for it. Like that does, that does not seem okay. And then we went through this whole process of setting up the fundraiser and golly, that was, you know, people will never understand how much work went into that fundraiser to raise that kind of money without, you know, I, I used, utilized social media, but I didn't have a huge following. I had a, like maybe a thousand followers and yet we still managed to get that money behind us and, not only that, then we did get it put onto the PBS. And the moment I walked into the doctor's office, it was, I think it was the last review I had after having the treatment. Dr. Energizer, who just, oh, he is the most energetic, amazing, incredible, passionate doctor. He just an incredible human being. Um, when I walked in and sat down, he just turned to me and the first thing he said was, I just want to congratulate you and acknowledge you on the fact that today, this week, we have had 66 patients within this hospital who now have access to that treatment that they could never have afforded if it wasn't for the advocacy and the work that you did behind the scenes. I just cried and it was like that moment of like every, it was then that I was like every everything I've gone through, every challenge, everything has been worthwhile because it's meant that it's helped 66 other people this week and it's going to continue to help and support other families and other people who maybe don't have the knowledge and the ability to raise that kind of money and now they have access without needing to fight for it. It's it's so incredible. I, I When I read that in the book, I cried because I was so emotional that, you know, the fact that it wasn't covered to begin with and the fact you had to go through the trials and tribulations that you had to look at the fact of how much does a life cost and I think that is it's so hard that so many people all across the globe have to think that and have to go through those thoughts 
but then to think that, you know, 66 lives in that one week didn't have to think about that is just mind boggling and beautiful. Yeah. And you think about the fact that that's like $6.6 million that was saved just in a week. It's like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. 6.6 million in a week. And who would have thought that how many others it's affected, you know, years down the line. I still hear stories of people who have been on that treatment and like, it's still a very commonly used treatment. It is still one of the, you know, has the best results and stuff like that. And every time I hear of someone being on it, it's just that feeling of like, I helped, like I helped and really grateful that that is part of my legacy. Um, You know, I I always talk about having a living, a living legacy and constantly building on it. You know, how can I continue to impact the world around me and how do I continue to have a legacy? But that's probably one of the, one of my biggest legacies, one of the ones that I'm most proud of. You were unknowingly part of hundreds, if not thousands of people's lives and journeys and will be for the rest of their life. Yeah. Um, And that's so beautiful. I think now I really want to flip back to like early childhood because this is something I didn't know about you, that you grew up in South Africa, which just (laughs) blew my mind. You know, what was it like growing up in South Africa and then, you know, moving across the world to Australia? So, like, stark difference. South Africa is... South Africa is such a different country. They are still going through, even now, they are still going through so much. There is so much corruption there. My dad actually still does live in South Africa, which he, he loves, um, but it is, it's a very challenging country to live in and to kind of, I, I've always really struggled to speak about it because unless you've been in a country that does have so much corruption and yet they are still trying to move through a lot of the things like the apartheid and the you know all of those sort of things they, they are still trying to get through that that I mean apartheid only happened in like 93 94 it was around the time I was born they are still facing all of that like I grew up when I was born like when I was growing up I had a house with like a 10 foot wall that was on top of that, there was like barbed wire and um, electric fence. Like we were, we had to be really safety conscious. Like I wasn't allowed to leave the, the premises of my house by myself. We, we didn't walk on the streets. Like it was, it was really dangerous. And that's not just being a, you know, a white woman or a young white child at the time. A dangerous, it is one of the most dangerous countries in the entire world. So to go from that to coming to here, I like I still remember my parents just when we were driving like I just remember the feeling of the energy just kind of changed like it was kind of like my parents for the first time could actually breathe and like they weren't constantly having to you know in South Africa you don't stop at the red lights if you don't have to you don't stop because you are so conscious that your car is going to be broken into the like you don't have your handbag sitting on the seat next to you you don't have your phone sitting in the console because like the number of times people will break through your window and break and grab your things and like just go like it is so different like I've traveled back as a as an adult and like my parents have to sit there and explain it to me and part of me knows from growing up there but I've taken friends um who have grown up in Australia their entire lives and a lot of them have been like, I don't understand why I have to take all these precautions. And it's like, well, I don't want to show you why. Like, we need to just take the precautions, please, because 
if we don't, like, you know, we could end up in a lot of trouble and a lot of situations where we don't want to be. Again, that isn't just to do with the colour of my skin um, and, you know, the, anything like that. Like, it is, as a, it is a dangerous country regardless. There is a lot of anger, a lot of animosity. There is a lot of, there is a lot of racism. Uh, and I can honestly say that's from both, unfortunately, from both sides, like people of colour and the white people as well. And Indian populations, like there's just so much racism there and it's really hard to go there after kind of, like I was brought up also by a, a nanny, like a, a black woman. And so I have a lot of love and respect for their culture and for them as people. So to kind of know that there is that animosity there always kind of baffled me. I never really understood why, um, and I'm still learning and I'm still growing in that area. I am still trying to understand and wrap my head around it and learn how to advocate and not really advocate, but be an ally for um, black people, um, people of colour, because I've seen that how beautiful they are. I know that they have the most beautiful hearts, the most beautiful souls. And yeah, I think that that, that has been probably one of my, my biggest things that I've been focusing on, especially like throughout my life, but especially this year after you know, a lot of things like the Black Lives Matter movement started like really taking, you know, president and taking over the media and really showing us what we need to be paying attention to and, you know, how, how bad things still are. It's confusing, um, but I've definitely gone off on a little bit of a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, to come to Australia from there, like to be able to go bike riding on the streets, to be able to go for a walk, to know that I was allowed to do whatever I wanted to do was so different. Um, I did a lot more sport once I got here. I think some of that had to do with just the the freedom and the attitude and the, like the, the Australian culture. Like sport is so part of the Australian culture and in South Africa, it was kind of a part of it, but not really. Like I played a little bit of netball, I played a bit of tennis at school, but it wasn't something that I loved. It was kind of just part of the curriculum. Whereas when I got here, I was like playing sport with the boys. I was playing, like I learned footy within like the first couple of months of being here. <laughs> so I really got to tap into that tomboy side of myself that maybe I hadn't, um, like that really like sporty side of myself that I hadn't really gotten to explore beforehand. And I think you're so right in the sense that Australia is so sports focused. And that really leads me to, I'd love for you to talk about judo. Oh, golly. Judo was the sport, like it is still my favourite sport. <laughs> um, I remember my my brother had, I can't remember, it was something, to, he was left-handed, but he kind of was a bit ambidextrous. So he kept like trying to go with his left hand and his right hand. Um, and he was recommended to go and do, I think it was judo because of that, or it was something to do with his muscle development. It was something along those lines. And mum took da Daniel to judo and I was sitting there. I was like, I want to do that. And mum's like, oh no, judo's for boys. And I was like, that's funny. I want to do it. <laughs> um, like I'd been brought up, like I was Mum was a ballet, like all into ballet when we were growing up. She was a ballerina when she was younger. I was, I, I'm just not, not elegant. That's not my thing. <laughs> like, I used to be like the really clumsy ballerina at the back of the class <laughs> that you knew had just been forced into ballet. I didn't love it. <laughs> 
wasn't my thing. So yeah, mum's little ballerina got on the judo mat. <laughs> um, really where I found myself, it was kind of the place, like I started judo when I was like nine or 10, I think, and was very, very naturally talented, very, very dedicated to the sport and started competing and started really getting into it. Um, by the age of 12, I was representing Victoria at national, like national levels. It was like something I really, really, really loved. And it was such a, for me, it was this place where I didn't have to be anything other than I was, which was quite magical. But at the same time, like looking back on that, it's quite sad that I felt like I couldn't be that person outside of the judo mat. And I, I still don't know why that is. I think that was just the, maybe the way I perceived myself or the way that I perceived, you know, the sort of like standards of how I needed to be at school or, you know, the, the rules or what I thought was going on there. But as I said, the, 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 the Jess on the judo mat, she was like, she, well, she was basically the person that I've now sort of learned to develop and sort of grow into as a person as a whole. But I felt very free. I felt like I could speak. I felt like I could laugh. I felt like I could enjoy whatever it was I was enjoying. And yeah, it really formed a huge part of the person that I am. You know, I learned to set really strong, sustainable goals. It taught me so much grit, Um, you know, to be, I went through a lot of injuries, you know, anyone at an, like I was ended up tracking for the Olympics. So anyone at an elite level knows that you have to face a lot of injuries. You have to overcome them. You can't let them get in the way. And they are real. like, it is hard when you face, when you're as like, when you're an elite level athlete and then you have an injury that you know is going to hold you back, really hard to get through. You have to rehab it. You have to be patient. I am not. <laughs> and like, so it really taught me to just have, like it did t- bring that out of me. It brought dedication and for practice and for training and for understanding and for a real appreciation for hard work and for my body and as much as I said that it also allowed me to be who I was it also taught me a lot of respect like judo and any martial arts you have to you know there is a lot of respect especially in the Japanese culture you know I had to learn how to, to sometimes shut my mouth as well and risk like bring that through and to sort of stick to the guidelines and things like that and I think it was probably the only place in my entire teen years that I actually followed rules so (laughs) oh I love that so much (laughs) so but yeah it, it did and like I think by the time I was like 16 that was kind of where for me I felt like I had to make this choice of either going and tracking for the Olympics. At the start of that year, I had had like quite a severe injury. I'd hyperextended my knee and the rehab for that was really long. Um, And I ended up going to the nationals that year and just not performing as much as well as I'd hoped. And there was sort of this, it was then when I realized like I basically had to choose to be an elite athlete or to be, like to kind of continue with my education it kind of felt like I didn't have the option for both because there wasn't space like if I needed to take time off and focus on my studies which I was in year 10 at the time so I knew I was going into year 11 year 12 and I knew that I would need some space to do that it I could very much see that that wasn't a possibility 
so yeah, it kind of just got to the point where I went, well, I have to make a decision and I'm going to choose to drop judo. I later went back to it and still loved it. I still love it. Unfortunately, um, post-brain surgery, I have to be very, very careful. One of the things that they told me I can't do is judo. <sighs> so it's that and I'm not allowed to scuba dive either, actually. So two of your big gloves, you can't, you yeah. can't really do? I've always had to, it was, that was probably some of the hardest things to hear was like, there, there are limitations on what I can do. The only way I learned to deal with that was by looking at it from a state of appreciation and going, I am so grateful and so lucky and so appreciative that I took those opportunities when they were handed to me. I have been to the bottom of the ocean. I have dived, like I've been on 150 dives around the world. Like I, I know what the bottom of the ocean looks like. I've had that experience. I'm never going to, I'm never going to wonder what that's like. And that's better than being told that you can't dive and you've never dived. And it was the same with judo. It's like, I know what it's like to be on the mat. I know how much joy and love and stuff like that it brought me. I know how great it was, um, and how amazing it was for my body. And I really appreciate that time in my life. And yeah, just learning to sort of look at it with the, you know, with the eye of appreciation rather than feeling like it's been something that's ripped away is so important. Yeah. And I think that touches back to you talking about gratitude and stuff like that. You could, you could sit in here and you could be angry about things and you could, but you're not, and you're the polar opposite of that. You're, you find joy in those moments and those things that are really what a lot of people would see as negative, but you see them as, as a really strong positive. Um, And, you know, for me getting to know you as like, at first I knew you as a speaker on a stage, which was so incredible to get to know you from that space. And I remember my first time meeting you, you spoke about the patch method. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And at first I thought it was like the best pun ever, given that you were wearing a patch (laughs) at the time. And then the more you spoke about, the more I learned, I was like, this is just an incredible, incredible thing. I would love for you to touch on that, to explain it in, in ways that other people would understand. Yeah. So definitely the best pun in the world. Um, I figured I had to lean on it along with I1 being E-Y-E-W-O-N. Yeah. Um, you know, puns all around. I figure you've got to, you know, for me, probably before I even jump into this, like for me, a day without laughter and a day without being able to laugh at myself and my situation is kind of been wasted. Like if I learn. I get to a point where I'm taking myself too seriously. Someone really needs to, you know, pick me up in the butt or something because that's not the life I want to live. I'm not here to live my life seriously. I'm live, here to live it with joy and with happiness and with gratitude. <laughs> so the patch method is, it is my method for building resilience. I'm still, it's so funny. I still continue to do so much research and more education in this area. Um, resilience has been the topic I've always loved to talk about and recently um, hasn't even been posted on social media. So this is going to be a first. Um, I have started to realize that my method and what I believe and, and what I sort of teach is more about holistic resilience. So what I have noticed is a lot of people will, when they think of resilience, they go straight to grit and being strong and being mentally strong, physically strong. But that's not everything and the problem with just focusing on the strength and the grit side of things is that a lot of times it doesn't allow you to address emotions it's kind of just steamrolling through what's going on getting to the other side and kind of 
then kind of collapsing like that's the kind of resilience that grit really has it's like you know you get through what you're going through you get to the other side but then that's kind of it and it's kind of like this it's not sustainable and where i really focus on is this whole method of building resilience in a really sustainable way that is not just going to it is not just going to help you going through challenges it's going to help you in your general life it is going to help you navigate challenges that are coming up it's going to navigate change navigate adversity but at the end of the day holistic resilience is about just bringing your life together and finding a little bit more joy and finding ways and creative ways to change your mindset that is going to help you no matter what's going on in life so patch stands is p-a-t-c-h p stands for positive and this is really about learning to change the things that you're focusing on you know i read recently that australians are seven times more likely to notice a negative occurrence in their life than a positive and this just baffles my mind a bit but at the same time we have this negativity bias we are trained by the media by the world around us to focus on the things that are going wrong instead of the things that are going right so when i'm talking about positivity positivity it's not about ignoring your emotions it is not about only giving yourself permission to feel the good emotions because i can guarantee you that is not healthy i and i can also let you know that i feel every emotion under the sun and i kind of love it it gives contrast to life like if you don't know what sadness feels like how can you know what joy and like joy feels like if you don't have those contrasts if you don't allow yourself to feel both of them you won't understand them the fact though you do have a choice where you put your power where you where you end the focus it's like you can experience sadness you can experience happiness but at the end of the day if you consistently look for the moments of joy for the things that are going well for the beautiful things in life you will see more of them and that's what's for me that's where that positivity comes from um the next one is adventure and this is really about having that adventurous mindset and constantly being open to opportunities it's you know growth mindset and it's asking yourself questions that are empowering that are going to help you get out into the world and look for opportunities beyond what you thought were possible and you know how can i do that what else could i do um you know how can i embrace the situation how can i continue to move forward what could i do instead you know what would someone else do what what other opportunities are there out there instead of you know the closed mindset of like oh well i'd never be able to do that or how come this always happens to me or um you know life's unfair it, like that's very closed-minded because you've already got you've got the end result right there you're giving yourself well nothing good can come of this so why even bother looking beyond my situation and i'm just going to sit in my self-pity whereas that adventure adventurous mindset is about being resourceful it's about looking beyond yourself it's about who can i talk to what can i do how can i change this t thankful um no surprises there um but <laughs> like as i've said gratitude for me has honestly changed my life um so grateful for my granny to actually bring that into my life and it is something so small and has such a huge impact like if you just have a look into the impact on your health that practicing gratitude on a daily basis can have people who practice gratitude are shown to sleep better they are shown to um have and experience less anxiety and depression 
they are known to feel healthier. They are known to, you know, all of these amazing things. They're known to be happier people just in general. Just by doing this one little practice that literally you can do for two to three minutes at the end of the day and just sort of bring yourself home, appreciate and go to sleep on. It's amazing. Um, C is focused on creating. And this is about creating the life that you want by setting goals. If you don't have a target to aim for, you're just going to be flailing around in life. And that is why we set goals. It's like you want to be going towards something. You want to know that you are creating a life that is in alignment with yourself, is on track with what you want to do, and then holding yourself accountable to it and really taking action on those steps and you know, breaking it up into your milestones and stuff like that. It is Goal setting is such an exciting experience and really the the premise around goal setting is not necessarily getting to the end. It's about the journey between and the gratification that you feel and actually knowing that you're putting yourself out there and taking action, taking opportunities, um, not letting fear get in the way, not letting fear of failure get in the way, especially. And the last one is H, which is for honour. And I think now more than ever with what's going on in the world, with what we are facing with um, the COVID lockdowns and stuff like that, honouring yourself and really giving yourself the space to feel your emotions, to be where you're at, and to also ask yourself, what do I need right now is so important. Um, you know, for your mental health, if you can just check in with yourself once a day, I do it every single day. It's like, what, what do I need right now? What do I, what is one thing that will make me feel better or make me feel joyful or, you know, what's something that's going to change my emotions, right? Like change up my emotions. What's going to, you know, change my state. How can I, how can I bring joy forward? Even if it's just one little thing and learning to do that was so important. Learning to look after myself, filling up my cup, knowing that if, if I'm looking after myself, I am in a much better position to help others. Whereas if I'm feeling depleted, I'm going to feel resentful or I'm going to feel irritated or I'm going to feel angry or, you know, whatever it is. If someone else comes to me with their problems or, you know, whatever's going on for them, if I'm not looking after myself, I'm going to push back. I'm not going to want to feel, I'm not going to want to support them. I'm not going to be the best version of myself. So if I can honor myself, if I can look after myself, then I can also have such a beautiful impact in the world. And that is, that is the patch method. I, and I and I flash back to you when you're talking about then it, it flashed back to that that first day that I met you and I remember um, I saw you walk in at you know at Magic Moments which is what this beautiful podcast is started by and I was like oh this girl's cool like that was my first thought and then you went on to talk about about Patch and and all that sort of thing and you told your story and and I was so just blown away. I'm like, this big ball of light can have gone through so much stuff and still come in with this incredible patch on. And then the next day you came with that one and it, it blew me away. I actually, and, I, and when I was telling someone this the other day, I actually, it brought tears to my eyes because what it showed is that you love who you are and you, you don't just, you haven't just made an acronym for the sake of making an acronym. It is your life. It is how you how you act, how you speak, how you treat everybody. And for me, seeing you without your patch, I was like, this is incredible. You know, there are so many circumstances where people would hide 
and and not be willing to to showcase what has happened to them and, and you're the opposite of that and it blew me away oh, you're making me all teary <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think you know reading I won for me was an honor it really was and I and that's how I see it is that I've got to know you on stage I've got to know you online and now I've read this like personal thing of you, your your book and hearing about all these different things and you know, even the, the fact of hearing about your first love, which not a lot of people get to know about people. And I think, you know, you, you share in such a way that's both educational, but also in a way that you like, you feel like you get to know you. And that's, and that's what I love about how you share. Um, and I really want to, because I remember when I first, after I first met you and I looked up your Insta and I saw that you'd checked Kokoda and that just blew me away I was like oh my gosh she tracked Kokoda like that is something that just I think every Australian thinks about it and <laughs> I was like oh Jess can do it anybody can do it and you know what, what led up to Kokoda why Kokoda how did oh, it come golly. about so many things um I if it hasn't already come across this way on this little episode <laughs> very adventurous little spirit I've got. Um, I have traveled, I like, I, I've always loved going and experiencing the world and experiencing different things. When I was young and I, like I'm talking like grade three, um, there was a girl in our year level who her dad had gone and hiked, like summited um, Mount Everest. And I remember sitting there, like I would have been what, like eight in grade three. And I was like, I'm going to do that one day. Because <laughs> um, she talked about like how you have to wear oxygen and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I feel like a lot of young people, like, you know, when you're young and you're a child, you, you'll say things like that. No, but I seriously meant that. Like I was seriously going to one day hike to the top of um, Mount Everest. So, you know, once I got to the other side of my diagnosis, once like my prognosis was looking, you know, a lot more stable, once um, I had been able to relearn how to walk and things like that, I sat there and I was like, okay, cool. So how do we now, like, like how do I like start really living life? And my poor fiance <laughs> sitting there and he is like, I'm like the highest level of energy and he is like, the way I describe him is like my grounding factor. He is like the calmest person. He is so chilled out. He is so good for me <laughs> in that sense. Um, exact opposite. And I was like, we're going to go and hike the, um, to Mount Everest. And I was like, we might not go, we'll just do base camp. It's fine. And he was like, um, okay, what? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, let's go. Like, we'd sort of been talking about going overseas. And I was like, let's do this as our overseas trip. And he was like, um, all right. Uh, <laughs> and I took it to my doctors and they had said, unfortunately, because um, of the altitude and the, you know, all the stuff that happens when you've had brain surgery, it still does mean, you know, it, it does make your brain a little bit more um, susceptible to other things and a little bit more at risk and, my, you know, my doctors were just like, look, I know that the distance and I know that physically you would be able to do it. He said, but I cannot sign off on you doing something high altitude, especially after brain surgery. I was devastated. I went home. I was just like, oh my gosh, there are like six or seven different hikes I want to do in, around the world. Like I've always wanted to do like Kilimanjaro and 
the Inca Trail and split, like so many other tracks as well that are high in altitude. And it was that moment then that I went, oh my gosh, like what was the point? Like it was always like, like I actually had this point. And I was like, what was the point in surviving if I can't even live the life I want to live? And I got really down. Like I was on the downward turn for like four days of being, like I was angry, I was furious, I was so irritated at the world, at the universe. I was like, this is ridiculous. And Sean was just like, well, okay, I get that you're feeling like that, but what could we do? Like, what, what, how do we do this? Like, what is something that you can do instead? And I took a step back and I was like, okay, well, yeah, let's have a look at some of the hikes that don't include altitude that we'd still be interested in. And we, you know, we came up with this whole list um, of different tracks that we'd like to do. But the one that did stick out was the Kokoda track. Um, for me, I didn't really know a lot of the history about it, surprisingly. At the time, I knew that it um, was, you know, part of um, World War II. I knew that it had quite significant, um, you know, quite a lot of significance for Australia as a whole and how we were, or how we are now. Um, but I didn't understand too much about that. I was just like, oh, yeah, I just want to go and do this challenging track. And it sounds great. And Sean was like, oh, yeah, no, I'd like to do that. I think he had um, some of his, like, his, his family's been in Australia for quite a long time. So I'm pretty sure he had family members that did fight in the war on the Kokoda track. And yeah, it was sort of, for me, it was like, we booked it in for exactly two years after I had um, taken my first steps post brain surgery. So for me, it was really about this physical challenge. Whereas for Sean, it was about being there and supporting me, but also about doing track as a whole. But golly, the, the track itself, challenging amazing beautiful um it has given me so much respect for our history for um you know I, I learned so much like I came to the other side of it and I was like I have learned so much I have so much respect for you know all the soldiers that fought um it gave me so many insights into how different life was and how blessed we are to be here like I, I remember sitting um at the top of like Isarava, which is one of the there's two sections on the track that uh, they get you to do or at least our company did um, memorial services Isarava is one of them I think there was about 150 I could be wrong on the number it was about 150 Australians that died on that section of land that we were on so you know I'm a very spiritual person so I also felt like I felt a lot of energy from there in that respect but it was just such a beautiful place to kind of be and I remember thinking like I kind of just sat down and sat and started reflecting and medit like almost meditating and it was like this moment where I, well you know there was so much gratitude in that moment I was like you know if if these soldiers if these people hadn't come out here and really like most of them risked their lives um and their livelihoods and they walked away from very comfortable lives in australia to come and do so you know we we could have been in a very different situation australia may have been completely taken over if those like if those soldiers hadn't have done what they like helped stop the invasions with the australia we know would be very very different and you know it came back to i wouldn't have the treatment that I've had access to, to. We may not have even moved to Australia from South Africa because, you know, it could have been just as dangerous. Like there were so many moments where I was like, this, like this one war and this one thing that these people have done 
these soldiers have done for Australia has really changed the Australia that we know and has created like the, the feeling of safety, the feeling of everything and that mateship. And uh, it, it was just this moment where I went, wow, like you don't hear enough about how much of an impact things like that can have had can have and yeah it was a real moment of feeling I don't know like I felt really sort of like patriotic and like for me it was like that moment where I was like really really like I've always been honored to be an Australian but it was the moment where I felt really honored to be an Australian and to really recognize how how lucky we are that and in your book one of my favorite lines throughout the Kokoda thing is it wasn't just about me and achieving my goals. It was about honouring the men who had fought and appreciating, appreciating all they did for their country. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, it just, it hit me in the feels because, you know, you went there, the fact that you said it was two years after learning to walk again, but you went there for, for yourself, but also you went there to, to honour them and to, to cherish their, their legacies. Yeah. And I think that became more, it was interesting, like the, 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 like the, um, the further onto the track we got that the more that became my focus it was like yeah this is not about me this is so much bigger than me. yeah um, you know I, I've come here for me but what I'm leaving with is you know I, I'm walking someone else's legacy I'm literally walking in their shoes and getting to experience something that I think every Australian really should get out there and really see like it's one of the weirdest feelings because it is the most beautiful peaceful incredible place and yet you're told about how the like we went with a um someone who does all the the history um like that you can choose to go with like a australian led um tour or a like a papuan led tour and if you go with the australian the benefit like you still have uh, people um, from Papua New Guinea and you are still supporting um, their economy by going. But when you do have an Australian guide, they do also take um, extra history lessons and stuff like that so that they can can give you all the information and stuff. And yeah, it was, it was so interesting to sort of hear the, the peaceful place that we were hiking in that was so calming and had such beautiful energy. Had, you know, to try and imagine feeling completely and utterly broken down with fear and to be like rained on as much as they were rained on and to know that there would have been like helicopters and planes going over their heads and like bombs going off and guns firing like it was just so weird to try and wrap my head around because it was like uh, this place is just stunning and yet we are walking where the um where so many soldiers have walked and so many soldiers lost their lives as well it's incredible that you know talked about two years from after learning to walk and and today is is you know it's it's two days after that date but you know it was four years ago that you you had a seizure and then you're diagnosed with stage four melanoma to then now you know having an, an incredible career in you know like coaching and resilience and and all this incredible stuff it's it's such an amazing reflection and getting to hear you speak about these pivotal moments in your life yeah and it's been it's been really I don't know it's been a very interesting couple of days just sort of sitting with it and kind of reflecting and going wow like how like I knew I'd done a lot I knew that I was like I am so proud of myself um I think if you can't be your biggest cheerleader then no one else will be don't expect someone else to cheer from the sidelines for you you've got to do it yourself you've got to be the person that backs yourself 110 percent all the time um 
I know that's something that we aren't taught to do. And it feels it, like for me, I know that it felt so strange and I even used to get criticized for it. But if I can't back myself, if I can't sit here and, you know, tell people that I think I've written one of the best books around, like I honestly do, like I am so genuinely like honored to have my book out there, to have my story out there and to have done it in such a beautiful, like I, I personally think it's, it is beautifully written. It is like, I wrote it with my heart and my soul and, with every intention of it having such an impact on people. So why wouldn't I sit there and say, I think it is one of the best books around. And it's not because I want you to go and buy my copy of my book. Like it doesn't like that doesn't bother me. I, I wrote it as a legacy. I wrote it to support and help other people navigate challenge and change. But yeah, to sort of sit here and go, I have done and achieved so much and probably more than I could ever have imagined being able to achieve in my 20s. Like, if you told me what would it, like, I would have been finished, I think I'm like 10 years past high school now. I would have been, yeah, nine years. <laughs> I feel very old saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hadn't told, like, Jess in year, like, if I had gone back and told Jess in year 11 that, like, this is the kind of life I would be living and that I would not only have overcome stage four cancer, but I will have also been a published author. Um, you know, it's something that I that I know we've spoken off mic about was that I am a little bit dyslexic. So I, for me, I was never that great in English and stuff like that at school. I was always like a bit more of a science nerd and loved sport and stuff like that. But English just wasn't my thing. I couldn't quite wrap my head around like grammar and spelling. And, you know, a part of that was the dyslexia, I think. <laughs> like I still type out today. I'm like, Where's, which one is it, B or D? I have no clue. Gosh, drives me mad. And I'll just like start writing words and I'm like, yep, okay, thank goodness we've got autocorrect because otherwise no one would know what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like to know that that is one of my achievements and, you know, to go, to be able to speak and to coach and to support. Yeah, I, I would never, I, I don't think I would have believed it at the time, but it is such an honor and it's such a, like it's something that I will never take for granted and I will continue to grow and continue to find different ways to support and to help other people tap into their resilience um, because I never want someone to feel alone going through challenges in life. Yeah, that's, it's so beautiful. And um, it's crazy thing. It's only four years, you know, in, in so many ways, four years is a short time, but also four years is a long time. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's so beautiful to think about all of that. And I want to ask you one last question before yeah. you head off. And that's, you know, what is the time in your life you've laughed the most? I laugh so much all the time. Oh, golly. That's a really hard question. To be honest, I laugh at myself so much. Like, I think I am the funniest person. I, no, I, I know that I am not the funniest person in the world, but I find everything <laughs> I say so funny. I sit there and like, I can, I, I, I've just learned to find myself hilarious. I think part of it is like being in hospital in isolation for so long. You have to learn to find like the funny in every little bit and piece. Oh, this is such a hard question. There was a, <laughs> okay, there is actually one. So I was talking to mum this one time we were driving and we drove, she was looking at buying a car or something like that. And I said something 
to her and I was like, yep, um, you know, just give them a call and just say that, just act really non-talent. And mum just looked at me and she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, non-talent. And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, like non-talent, like, you know, just kind of like, it doesn't really matter, brush it off, like all that. She's like, Jess, it's nonchalant. And I was like, what? And she's like, and I, and like, I would have been like 22, 23, like I would have been in my twenties. I really should have known. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, yeah, that's nonchalant. And I was like, oh gosh. And we just sat there laughing. And now every single time, it's like an ongoing joke. Like every time I go to say nonchalant, I'm always like, yeah, it's nonchalant, right? <laughs> I love how you said that in the most Australian accent ever. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know whether I've got, I can never work out if I have an Australian accent or not. But um, I, I don't, I think I've got a slight accent, but then I put myself next to Sean, my fiance, and he is like the most Australian broken. Um, speaking person. <laughs> oh, even more than me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he grew up in Wodonga. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I get you. I mean, I grew up very rural too, so I understand. That. <laughs> it's funny because um, when I was reading, when I found out you were born in South Africa, I, I guess it kind of made sense because like she doesn't have the most Australian accent. <laughs> and Although when you do learn how to, like when you do do speaking training, that's something they train you out of is. It, you have to be very conscious of the way that you articulate and speak and um, things like that. So they do train you out, like train you into speaking in a certain way. So that has like, it has been a conscious thing. It was actually when I started dating Sean and I, as I said, like he's got such a very good accent. I was like, that was my one thing. I was like, I can't spend too much time with this guy or he's going to ruin my speaking career. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I guess I noticed it too. Like when I was overseas, my accent adapts yeah. very quickly um, and then when I go home to like my family and I spend a copious amount of time with my family who still live regional, yeah, my accent just goes so backwards and then I'll come back home and it just, it's back normal. It's, it's just so funny how accents change and shift. Oh, do you know, so I, this is actually another funny moment because I, it just came back to my mind when you started talking about Australia. So do you know what, it, like if someone says to you, did you get a Guernsey to the wedding or something like that? Do you know what that means? Like you got an invite. Yeah, yeah. So Sean, the one day was talking to us because, yeah, so fiance, we're getting married. Um, he was talking about someone getting a Guernsey, and I was like, me and Mum were sitting there, and we're like, what? <laughs> and he was like, you know, get a Guernsey to the like. I think we were talking about like our engagement party or to the wedding or something. And I was like, what? And he was like, like an invite, like. And I was like, well, why didn't you just say that? Like, why didn't you just say that? Are they going to get an invite? And he was like, well, I did. And I was like, no, you didn't. You said, are they going to get a Guernsey? What the hell are you on about? <laughs> so, yeah, I still don't know all of the Australian lingo, apparently. <laughs> Maybe Sean and I are one and the same in that, in that sense because I knew what it meant. <laughs> oh, I love, I love Australian lingo. My stepdad, the very first time, before he was my stepdad, the very first time I met him, he's like, I'm going to go to the tin tank to get some kanga which I'm going to go to the bank to get some money. And I just looked at him, the exact face you made, like a <laughs> gobsmacked look, is what I gave him in the back of his car. I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> so there is, there's, there's Bogans like me and like Sean, but there's next level like my stepdad. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, when my because my whole family moved across from Australia, from South Africa to Australia. My granddad, um, he, he decided he had to have all the lingo and he always used to speak about, um, he was like, yeah, we're going to hit the frog and toad. And I was like, it just sounds so weird hearing it in a South African <laughs> accent as well. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Oh. 
so much. Jess, thank you so much for making time and, you know, writing an incredible book, being an incredible speaker, coach, and all around incredible human and being that advocate for those people who, who need someone in their corner. And thank you so much for sharing all of that today. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited to see this come to life. I'm so excited for you and seeing how this is going to go for you. And I'm so grateful that we got to meet at Magic Moments and just getting to see you become the beautiful human being that you are today. Thank you so much, Jess. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Magic Moments Foundation. 